Okay. All right. We are back. Political theory and um, other stuff. Mike and Paul here doing The Racial Contract by Charles W. Mills. We're in the details section of the of the work. We are on page 46, bottom of 46. And um, Paul, do you want to start her off? I will give it a shot. The non-European state of nature is thus actual, a wild and racialized place that was originally characterized as cursed with a theological blight as well, an unholy land. The European state of nature, by contrast, is either hypothetical or, if actual, uh, generally a tamer affair, a kind of garden gone to seed, which may need some clipping, but is really already partially domesticated and just requires a few modifications to be appropriately transformed. A testimony to the superior, mor superior moral characteristics of this space and its inhabitants. Hobbes' paradigmatically ferocious state of nature may appear to be an exception, but as we will see later, it is really only literal for non-Europeans, so that it actually confirms rather than challenges the rule. Because of this moralization of space, the journey upriver, or in general, the journey into the interior in imperial literature, the trip away from the outposts of civilization into native territory, acquires deep symbolic significance. For it is the expedition into both the geographic and the personal heart of darkness, the evil without which correlates with the evil within. Thus, in Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 rewriting of Conrad in the context of Vietnam, Willard's, Martin Sheen, Journey Upriver to Find Kurtz, Marlon Brando, whose stages are sartorially marked through the gradual stripping away of the civilized uniform of the U.S. Army to the final mud-caked, machete-carrying figure indistinguishable from the Cambodian villagers ceremonially killing the buffalo, is both a normative descent into moral corruption and a cognitive ascent to the realization that the war could have been won only by, uh, by abandoning the restraints of Euro-American civilization, has demonstrated in my life, presumably, and embracing the savagery of the North Vietnamese army. What does sartorially mean? It's a great question. Let's find that out. Relating to tailoring clothes or style of dress. So like has the uniform was degrading. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, and, and I think that's a story uh, that is told often, you know, obviously with the kind of Native American and cowboy movies. You have to uh, act like the savage to be able to beat the savage. But what did we lose? Kind of, kind of nonsensical bullshit. Uh, I think... You know, in a lot of the situations, the reality of it, you know, historically was that the natives often weren't prepared for how savage and disgusting the European explorers or, or colonialists could be. Uh, they just weren't prepared to deal with somebody that was willing to just be that gross to you uh, as far as, you know, tactics of killing, enslavement, just shit like that. They were just like, well, what the fuck? All right. Um the battle against this savagery is in a sense permanent as long as the savages continue to exist. Contaminating and being contaminated by the non-Europeanized <clears throat> space around them. So it is not merely that space is normatively characterized on the macro level before conquest and the colonial settlement, but that even afterward on the local level there are divisions. The European city and the native quarter, white town and Oh, and word town. Yeah. Sorry, no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> uh, slash dark town, suburb, and inner city. Uh, David Theo Goldberg comments: 
Power in the polis, and this is especially true of racialized power, reflects and refines the spatial relations of its inhabitants. Part of the purpose of the color bar slash the color line slash apartheid slash Jim Crow is to maintain these spaces in their place. Uh, I'm going to interrupt myself here. I'm not sure if you watched it, but I sent you uh, a short little video earlier today uh, of a man in Syracuse at like a um, meeting with the mayor. Did you see that? Oh, dude, I watched that earlier today. So, so good. So on point. And it's, and I think it's pretty reflective of like what this is saying here and context for our listeners. Um, this man uh, addressing the mayor was like, part of defunding the police is what, and he asked the mayor, how many, uh, what percentage of our police live in Syracuse? Uh, and the mayor replied that it was only 5%. So this guy brought up um, all of these wonderfully valid points about like, okay, so that means that all of our funding for these people is not staying in Syracuse. It's going to the suburbs uh, and not just their salary while they're working forever, wherever they move with their pensions, wherever they move uh, with their benefits and health uh, afterwards, we will always be pouring that from our community to the suburbs. Um, so not only uh, are these police pretty much there to just criminalize their lives, uh, they're also funding other communities. And when they fund other communities, those communities get better schooling since 95% of that money is going to a place that they don't live in. Uh, it's, you know, it's, and those are kind of some aspects that I hadn't even thought about uh, on that level, um, which just shows how deep the, the systemic part of this bullshit really goes. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Um, so, uh, part of the purpose of the color bar slash the color line slash apartheid slash Jim Crow is to maintain these spaces in their place, to have the checkerboard of virtue and vice, light and dark space, ours and theirs, clearly demarcated so that the human geography prescribed by the racial contract can be preserved. For here, the moral topography is different and the civilizing mission as yet incomplete. Of this partitioning of space and person, France Fanon Fanon writes, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, the colonial world is a world cut in two. The settler's town is a town of white people, of foreigners. The native town uh, is a town of, uh, and expletive deleted, and dirty Arabs. Uh, this world divided into compartments, this world cut in two, is inhabited by two different species. In fact, the intimacy of the connection between place and subperson means that perhaps it never will be complete that those associated with the jungle will take the jungle with them, even when they are brought to more civilized regions. The jungle is, so to speak, always waiting to reassert itself. Every evolu stands in danger of deep, uh, devil, devolution. Uh, one might argue that in the United States, the growing post-war popularity of the locution of urban jungle reflects a subtextual and not very sub-reference to the increasing non-whiteness of the residents of inner cities, and the corresponding pattern of white flight to suburban vanilla sanctuary, our space, space, slash home space, slash civilized space. And, you know, this book was written in 97, so we've even seen a reversal. Um, but each time that, that moving, whether it's to the inner city or back again to suburbs or back to inner city places, it necessitates, uh, you know, a gentrification based generally on racial divides. Uh, from what I can see, uh, I don't have like stats to back that up now, but I feel confident enough to say that. Yeah, because there are stats that, that say that. Yeah, there are. I just don't have them on hand right now. 
Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, uh, so our space slash home space slash civilized space. In America, South Africa, and elsewhere, the white space is patrolled for dark intruders whose very presence, independently of what they may or may not do, is a blot on the reassuring civilized whiteness of the home space. Consider the curfew laws in segregated neighborhoods earlier in U.S. history, and arguably the continuing informal police practices now. The notices that used to be posted outside sundown towns. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it because I want it to be said because it is important for people to, to say it. Um, and that is, uh, so I'll just actually, uh, do that, that tiny little section. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'll just say, um, and the notices that used to be posted outside in quotes, sundown towns, nigger, don't let the sun set on you here. The racial contract demarcates space, reserving privileged spaces for its first class citizens. I know you just started reading, but I'm going to interrupt for two seconds. You're good. Uh, just to bring up a show that is uh, far out of people's memory by now, probably, but Lovecraft Country is a horror show. And the scariest scene that I saw in the entire show um, was them getting caught in a sundown town, which I think it's reflective of just how horrific this shit really is. Um, people were murdered in the 1950s for being the wrong color in a town in America after dark and often murdered by the law enforcement within that town. That is terrifying. That is disgusting. And there are a lot of people who are alive today that were alive then. So it's not like it was forever ago either. And that's just one of those things when we talk about that can't be instantly removed. Like, okay, that's not a law today, but it was a law within people's lifetimes. And you can't erase disgusting shit like that just by changing the law. And then saying, "Well, we have the same rights now." It's it's bullshit. And it's well, and, and obviously that if you um, had a friend or a family member, or if you personally had a situation like that, that sort of trauma is going to stay with you for the rest of your life. And they talk about um, generational trauma, how these things can can go from generation to generation. So, um, yeah, it's um, and it's not to say that we can't do anything about it. And so we just throw our hands up. It's to say that. Our progress. We need to do stuff about it and to stop uh, anybody who pretends that there is no, you know, remnants of that in today's society. Right. Uh, that's kind of my point. It's just, Absolutely. Yeah. The other dimension and moral appraisal and norming, which is, of course, the one that becomes more central, secularization is not traditional Christian. Uh, vice and virtue, but the emergent capitalist slash Protestant ethic of settlement and industry. Frank Wilmer urges that the ideology of, quotes, progress and uh, modernization has served for 500 years as a dominant justification of Western displacement and killing of the, in quotes, fourth world of indigenous peoples. Here, space is nationally characterized with respect to a European standard of agriculture and industry in such a way as to render it morally open for seizure, uh, expropriation, settlement, development, in a word, peopling. In the, and that reminds me of the God damn it! What did they call it? Um, in uh, in Germany, there was the idea of like uh, populating like the Sudetenland or whatever. What was that called? Oh yeah, um, I don't know what the movement was called. I know what you're talking about, but I, yeah, I don't know the. I know there was an exact word for it. Um, 
because they were German, but there was just this idea that like, okay, we German people just need more space. So, uh, and I'm talking like Nazi Germany. And so, um, uh, you know, they, they wanted to, to populate, you know, like Western Russia and like the Ukraine and stuff with, with Germans. Uh, it's very similar, which my point is, is that, um, you can see elements of this throughout different, you know, subsects of Western culture. For sure. And I think, you know, it's good to point out that obviously when we talk about it, um, with Nazis, most people make, yeah, but they were ridiculous, but I think maybe long run, it'll all be looked at ridiculously. Um, especially with that argument for progress, uh, if the end result of this, uh, and I know I'm. A lot of people would think I'm being hyperbolic, but if the end result of this is that we made all of these areas unlivable, how could you continue to argue that Western progress was like necessary for these areas is another thing that I think about all the time. Like on a long enough timeline, this could all just be an unbelievable tragedy. Um, and I'm still positive that they will justify it as like what needed to happen. Oh, and furthermore, keep in mind that a, a lot of um, what inspired uh, the Nazis was uh, stuff like Jim Crow. And and how um, we interacted yeah. with the indigenous people of America. So yeah, and just a quick shout out to how terrible the Turkish word of the Armenian. Yep, uh, just just for my peeps. Yeah, absolutely. In the white settler states, space will sometimes be represented as literally empty and unoccupied, void wasteland, virgin in quotes territory. There is just no one there. Or even if it is conceded that humanoid entities are present, it is denied that any real appropriation, any human shaping of the world is taking place. So there is still no one there. The land is terra nullis, vacuum domicilium, again virgin. Thus in the beginning, Locke tells us, all the world was America. The central and mutually complementary myths, as Francis Jennings points out, are the twin ideas of virgin lands and savage peoples. In both cases, then, this will be unpeopled land, inhabited at the most by varmints, critters, human beasts, who are an obstacle to development, rather than capable of development themselves, and whose extermination, or at least clearing away, is a prerequisite for civilization. A numbers game is played, involving the systematic undercounting of the aboriginal population, often by a factor of 10 or more, since by definition, large populations are impossible in savage societies. And then, they are no longer large. One will not want to admit how large they once were. Richard, uh, what is this guy's name? Drennan. Okay, Richard Drennan describes how many European settlers in the uh, United States thought of themselves as inland Crusoes. And in, you know, kind of like Lewis and Clark. They're like, oh, Lewis and Clark did all of this shit. By the way, they were only able to do it because they had a guide right. uh, that already lived there. Uh, but we're still very, very proud of what Lewis and Clark did. Or like, yeah, this dude climbed Everest for the first time. Now, by that, we mean that he had Sherpa guides guide him up Everest. Uh, but still, first human to ever climb Everest. It's that sort of shit. Yeah. It's yep. just so fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And we still perpetuate it. Like, I'm willing to bet if I Googled who was the first to climb Everest, I could probably find some sites that are like well it wasn't this asshole uh, but most sites will list whatever european dude who scaled everest first um 
something, Henry. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and it's what's funny too is even if that was true, uh, so often I feel like uh, in that situation, the the indigenous people didn't climb it not because they weren't capable of it, but out of like some like common sense or, or like to like honor. Uh, the the holiness of the mountain, right? They're like, this place is sacred. Why would we need to climb it? We can climb two thirds of it and look at it, but we're not going to go all the way up it. And and the white people are like, what are you talking about? No, we just fucking need to conquer nature. Like what? No. We don't think there is enough trash up right, here. Right. Exactly. Uh, yep. We're gonna fix that for you. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, okay. So uh, inland Crusoe's in an unpeopled. Uh, wilderness characterized by Theodore Roosevelt as uh, the red wastes where the barbarian peoples of the world hold sway. Similarly, and keep in mind, Theodore Roosevelt was a president in the 20th century, right? We're not talking early 1800s. That was, that was a uh, 20th century there. So, um, right. And like legitimately one of the nicer ones yes. in a lot of aspects. Yes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so totally. He wasn't like some like right wing Nazi dude that right. accidentally got in. He was, in a lot of ways, more conscious of like helping people than most of the assholes of the time period or any time period, really. Totally. Um, so just to show, like, this wasn't like a bottom of the barrel scumbag with these terrible ideas. Right. Yep. At the time of first settlement in the Australian colonies, all lands were deemed to be wastelands and the property of the crown. In South Africa, the trek borers went on exterminatory uh, hunting expeditions and subsequently, in quotes, bragged about their bag of Bushmen as as fishermen boast about their catch. So the basic uh, sequence ran something like this. There are no people there in the first place. In the second place, they're not improving the land. And in the third place, oops, they're already all dead anyway. And honestly, there really weren't that many uh, many to begin with. So there are no people there, as we said in the first place. As we said in the first place, just fucking that, uh, that good old conservative will to just beat reality into whatever the fuck they want it to be. Right, exactly. Um, since, since the racial contract le- links space with race and race with personhood, the white-raced space of the polity is in a sense, the geographical locus of the polity proper. Where indigenous peoples were permitted to survive, they were denied full or any membership into the political community, thus becoming foreigners in their own country. That's so funny. I mean, funny in a sad way. Uh, Drennan describes this uh, remarkable final Milvellian political confidence trick the country was full of recent arrivals from the east mysterious imposters pretending to be natives and denying real natives their humanity similarly an australian historian could write in 1961 before the gold rush there were after all few foreigners of any one race in australia except for the aborigines if we may sheepishly i hope call them foreigners or yeah after a manner of speaking where did you guys, where did you guys come from anyway uh you're not from around here are you it's just the fucking ignorant bravado you would need to do that 
And, you know, I've seen it. There was a pretty viral video of like a lady going nuts in a gas station in Arizona and screaming at a young native lady, go back to your fucking country. Yep. And it's just like these fucking people, man. Mm. My fucking God. I wish they all, I wish like there was just some like racist homeland that we could just send all these fuckers back to. Yep. Some like shitty little volcanic island somewhere. I don't know. Um, uh, this race space will also mark the geographic boundary of the state's full uh, obligations. On the local level of spatialization, norming them manifests itself in the presumption that that certain spaces, e.g. those of the inner city, are intrinsically doomed to welfare dependency, high street crime, underclass status because of the characteristics of its inhabitants, so that the larger economic system has no role in creating those problems. Thus, one of the interesting consequences of the racial contract is that the political space of the polity is not coextensive with its geographical space. Uh, in entering these dark spaces, one is entering a region normatively discontinuous with white political space, where the rules are different in ways ranging from differential funding, school resources, garbage collection, infrastructural repair, to the absence of police protection. Finally, there is the uh, microspace of the body itself, which in a sense is the foundation of all the other levels. The fact, to be dealt with in greater detail later, that the persons and subpersons, the citizens and non-citizens, who inhabit these polities, polities do so embodied in envelopes of skin, uh, flesh, hair. Their non-white body carries a halo of blackness around it, which may actually make some whites physically uncomfortable. A black American architect of the 19th century trained himself to read architectural blueprints upside down because he knew white clients would be made uncomfortable by having him on the same side of the desk as themselves. I just I just love that that the quote is just so um so crazy. And 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 you know, we were talking about the mental health stuff earlier. If you are so made clear of the fact that other human beings are made com uncomfortable by you being close to them that you teach yourself how to read upside down, uh, that does something to your psyche, you know. Um, no, it, absolutely. And it, it like it's so fucked up because it forced more excellence out of this awesome person uh, who is being treated like a piece of shit. Yeah. This person was able to excel beyond any reasonable expectations. Just being an architect uh, at all yeah. is an accelerant of being just, you know. And then not only that, he's also forced um, to go above and beyond even that to deal with assholes who couldn't do what he does. Yeah. Uh, and it's just to and like to be on that other side of the table being like, well, I do need this person because I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing, but I need them to understand that they have to be on the other side of the table. Like, right. It's just confident ignorance is just the most fucking frustrating thing to deal with, especially when it's uh, this disgusting. You know, if you lack introspection, it's quite possible that the majority of people that he encountered initially, that it was clear to him that they were uncomfortable, didn't even realize that they were... Um, 
uh, through their body language, like emoting that, right? Um, and they might yeah, not have even been uh, been uh, conscious of the fact that they were uncomfortable. They just were uncomfortable. Like there have definitely been times where I've uh, I've done something, and it was only by because of of my learning, uh, you know, having the the mindset of looking back afterwards and being like, oh, dude, that was because of of racist ideas that have been permeated into me that I acted in that way. But if I hadn't have been looking for that sort of shit, I I wouldn't have thought twice about it. Uh, Part uh, part of this uh, feeling is sexual. The black body in particular is seen as paradigmatically a body. Lewis Gordon suggests that a black presence is a form of absence. Um, Every black person becomes a limb of an enormous black body, the black body. Whites may get to be talking heads, but even when blacks' heads are talking, one is always uncomfortably aware of the bodies to which these heads are attached. So blacks are, at best, talking bodies. Early rock and roll was viewed by some whites, white conservatives as a communist plot because it brought the rhythms of the black body into the white bodily space. It began the funky subversion of that space. These are literally jungle uh, rhythms telegraphed from the space of savagery, threatening the civilized space of the white polity and the carnal integrity of its inhabitants. So when in the 1950s, uh, white artists did cover versions of quote-unquote race records, uh, songs on the Jim Crow rhythm and blues charts, they were sanitized, cleaned up, the rhythms rearranged. They were made recognizably white. And this, this just real quick, this reminds me of the whole like a study I've heard other people um, in articles talk about or whatever, where it's like you have a white dude come out and they ask the participant is asked his weight and his height. And then they have a black dude come out and they have the person estimate their weight and height. And even though the black and white dude are the same height and same weight, it's always that the black dude is taller and and and, and more muscular in the mind of um, the participant, whether they are white or black. That's crazy. Um, Yeah, so you want to finish this off for us? Yeah, let's take her home. Uh, More generally, there is also the basic social requirement of distinguishing on the level of everyday interaction, an interaction taking place not on some abstract plane, but within this racialized space, person to person, from person to subperson, social intercourse. Thus, in the United States, from the epoch of slavery and Jim Crow to the modern period of formal liberty but continuing racism, the physical interactions between whites and blacks are carefully regulated by a shifting racial etiquette that is ultimately determined by the current form of the racial contract. In her study of how white women's lives are shaped by race, Ruth Frankenberg describes the resulting racial-social geography, the personal boundary maintenance that, are requi- that required one always maintained a separateness, a self-conscious boundary demarcation of physical space. Conceptions of one's white self map a microgeography of the acceptable routes through racial space of one's own personal space. These traversals or space are imprinted with domination, prescribed postures of deference and submission for the black other, the body language of non-puppetness, no reckless eyeballing, traffic codes of priority, my space can walk through yours and you must step aside, unwritten rules for determining when to acknowledge the non-white presence and when not dictating spaces of intimacy and distance, 
zones of comfort and discomfort, thus far and no farther. And finally, of course, anti-miscegenation laws and lynching to prescribe and punish the ultimate violation, the penetration of black into white space. If, as I earlier argued, there is a sense in which the real polity is the virtual white polity, then without pushing the metaphor too far, one could say that the non-white body is a moving bubble of wilderness in white political space, a node of discontinuity, which is necessarily in permanent tension with it. I He is so good. That, that, he is. That's just so fucking uh, incredible. So, and it, so incredible. Just, it, you know, it's obviously I can't actually fathom this, but to to be so necessary to a culture and yet so maligned, I, I just can't. It's so fucking disgusting. Yeah. Um, you know, you. But keep in mind, like a lot of it, like most of it, uh, you know, and I think this is what the book is arguing, is not uh, uh, talk about the signatories versus like the non-signatories. Right, no, it's, like, no, I'm not saying like every American is guilty of this, but to be a black person in America. Right. Uh, that's what I'm talking. I just can't fathom how shitty um, that must feel most of the time. Yep. Um, yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah, it it's crazy. so frustrating. And the fact that there haven't just been decades of race riots speaks um volumes you know yeah yep yep um so next time we'll be um uh putting uh, going into the next section of uh details which is the racial con the racial contract norms and races the individual establishing personhood and sub personhood and uh yeah we look forward to it once again or as always thanks for listening and have a great day um what percent of the police live in a city? Uh, 5% or so. 5%, so 95% don't live in the city. Yes, so sir. when you say that the vast majority of the percentage goes towards salaries, etc., yes, fringe benefits, that means that they take their money on 81, go to outside the city, pay taxes in those communities that have some of the best schools while we have an underfunded school district. $60 million up. So I just want to put into context what we're talking about, because it's really easy to say, Mayor, and with all due respect, I like you, but that was a very politician answer. Wait, I'm it's, sorry, what specifically? The, the, we will consider and we will look. What, I'm, what, I'm, what we're saying is we're not interested in considering and looking. What we're saying is actually there's 50 million, commit to 20 million cut, right. because we're sending money as the mayor of Syracuse. When you don't have a tax base, you're sending money out of Syracuse, and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life, because their pensions, their health insurance, their families. So we are funding for other people's communities to have the promise of the American dream while we are denying it in our community. That's the context that you as the mayor have to look at this under. So when we talk about renegotiating union contract, what we're saying is you can't play around with maybe um, we will. No, y'all got to go because you don't provide a service that is beneficial to the community that is meaningful to the community. The services that you provide criminalize our community, impoverish our community, reallocate resources to suburbs. We are actually funding the suburbs, both in our police departments and in our schools. And to be clear, just to be clear, it's not just the fact of like the percentage of people, we're also funding what race of people on the police force the percentage of race of teachers as well, superintendent, board president. 
So we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. The, de the devil's in the data and in the details. There, respectfully, it is not acceptable for us to be here considering. 